Welcome back to Core Anesthesia. Whether you are a student prepping for tests and boards or a CRNA here to earn CEUs, we are glad you've joined us. For more about us, make sure to check us out on Instagram at Core Anesthesia and online at coreanesthesia.com. Welcome back to Core Anesthesia. I'm Cole here with Tanner, and today we want to do a discussion on different positioning that we can have in the operating room. Anything from supine to trendelenburg, sitting to lithotomy. We kind of want to go through each one, talk about the effects that we're going to see on the cardiovascular system, the respiratory system, pressure points that we need to be concerned about padding, and different nerve injuries that can occur in the different positions. So Tanner, do you just want to take us away here with what's the main concern with the supine position? The supine position is going to be the most common position that we have our surgical patients in. This is uh, just them laying flat on their back. And things that we need to think about for supine position, obviously, since they're laying on their back, you need to be thinking about any kind of pressure points. So think about uh, your hips, tailbone, shoulder blades, those types of things. Those are very common. We do that when we're in the ICU, just making sure that pressure points are taken care of and monitored. The big thing that you want to keep in mind, though, with supine position is going to be your brachial plexus. And this is just a concern if you're going to be moving their arms. You want to keep their shoulders abducted less than 90 degrees. So you can have their arms extended straight out to the side. But as soon as you start to move those arms above that 90 degree, so think about like your humerus closer to your ear, as you move that above the 90 degrees, what's going to happen is you're going to have the head of the humerus is actually going to push into the axilla there. And that's where you're going to have your nerve injury with your brachial plexus. So if you want to put their arms up, you can basically have them kind of like a touchdown sign where you have your arms straight up to the side, hands up, but you do not want to extend that more than 90 degrees. If you have them just laying on their back, you want to keep their palms supinated or facing up, or you can have them neutral tucked against their body. I feel like that's usually what you see is the arms with the palms tucked uh, directly against their body. Keep in mind with tucked directly against their body, you're mainly concerned about the ulnar nerve injury there as they're elbows are pressing against the table. And so that's why you want to have them neutral or supinated. If you are tucking them, you want to tuck the blankets or the device underneath their body, not underneath the mattress. The risk there is if you tuck it under the mattress, their arms can still slide off the table and then down beside the table underneath the mattress. And then you can still have some injury there either in the shoulder or there in the ulnar nerve as well. Yeah, it's a great point to note. And as we move into the rest of these positions, we want to focus on the effects of the cardiovascular system and the respiratory system as our main two. And that will kind of lead us into the other discussions as well. And what I mean by that is when we're turning these patients either head down, head up on the side, we want to know how is that going to affect our venous return back to the heart and how that's going to affect our respiratory system in terms of our ventilatory pressures and our ability to inflate the lungs. So as we move into the next position, which is Trendelenburg, let's think about how that's gonna affect those two systems. So in Trendelenburg, we're gonna have our head down and our feet up. So the patient's flat, but tilted backwards so that their head is the most dependent part of the body. The blood then is gonna rush back from the legs all the way back up to the heart. And on the flip side, it's gonna stay more in the brain and not flow back to the heart from the upper part of the body. So what we're gonna see here is basically an autotransfusion that occurs from those legs, resulting in about a 9% increase in cardiac output in that first couple minutes, just simply because you have the extra venous return 
which is going to increase that preload and help the body push out more cardiac output. So if you remember the Frank Starling curve, this basically is a description of that. As we increase our venous return, increase our preload, we're going to increase our cardiac output until we get to the point that we have too much fluid coming back and we over distend the ventricles of the heart and it's not able to contract as well and we actually have a decrease in cardiac output. Your patient's comorbidities are going to play a role here as well. If they have underlying heart disease, they may shift differently on this curve. But if you have a, a patient with no underlying issues, basically just think as you tilt them in Trendelenburg, you're going to have an increased venous return, which is then going to increase your blood pressure due to an increase in cardiac output for those first couple minutes. In terms of the upper part of the body, like I said before, you're not going to have blood draining out of your head. So your body basically uses gravity to assist with the venous return from the upper part of the body where it uses skeletal muscle contraction to drain the blood from the venous system in the lower extremity. Well, because we're flipping the patient upside down basically here, you're going to have gravity assisting the lower part of the body, but the the head is not going to be able to drain because it's going against gravity. So as a result, you're going to have some edema that can form with longer surgeries in this position. You can have some increased pressure on the eyes, so your intraocular pressure will increase due to that decreased venous drainage and your intracranial pressure is also going to increase. So this extra fluid around the eyes can actually cause some blindness that occurs. You can have some central retinal artery occlusion from this direct retinal pressure from the extra fluid that we have. And you can also have some edema in the upper airways that occurs. So when you're going to go extubate a patient at the end of a procedure, when they're in the Trendelenburg position for a long time, it's very important that you do a leak test. So you deflate your cuff and you see, do you have a leak around the, the outside of the tube, which then would signify that you do not have that airway swelling to the significant level that it would occlude the airway once you remove that tube. So once you do have a leak test, you can safely remove the tube and have a decreased risk of, of having to re-intubate. In terms of the respiratory side of things with the Trendelenburg position, so the biggest thing here is anytime we put our head down and our lower extremities up, you're going to be moving your abdominal organs cephalod, so up towards the head, and it's going to push on the, the diaphragm and decrease the ability of the lungs to expand. So your respiratory compliance is going to be decreased. You're going to have increased respiratory pressures. Your functional reserve capacity, or your FRC, is going to be decreased because you're not going to have as much volume there from everything pushing on the lungs. And as a result, you can also have some increased risk of endobronchial intubation. So endobronchial intubation if you think about you intubate your patient, you're sitting a couple centimeters above the carina. Now we turn the patient in Trendelenburg and we're pushing all our abdominal components up on the lungs. It's going to push those lungs cephalod and increase the risk then of the tip of that tube now being in one of the bronchioles. On the flip side, when we talk in other positions here, if we turn the patient the opposite way, you're at increased risk of extubation simply because you're going to be lowering the lungs compared to a stagnant tube in the throat. And so you're at risk of extubation in that case. And then lastly here, as Tanner already talked about with brachial plexus injury in the supine position, we're also at risk here in the Trendelenburg position because if the patient is going to slide downward, then there could be a stretch on that brachial plexus. So let's say their head and neck are going to extend and slide down. Let's say you put shoulder braces on their, their shoulders to hold that there you can have some external compression on the brachial plexus and cause injury there as well. So just know it's not simply from abducting more than 90 degrees. It can also be from a stretch or a compression injury.
Right. And it's important to know with these nerve injuries, you can have nerve injuries several ways. You can have a stretch, like you mentioned, you can have compression. When you think about the Trendelenburg position, like you said, if you are using like a non-slip mattress and their shoulders stay in place, but their head is you know, sliding or more dependent, then you can have a stretch injury there. But if you put the shoulder braces on and you have the actual compression there on the shoulder braces, that's where you can actually cause damage due to compression, not just stretch. Yeah. And so that's why it's also important. I've seen a lot of literature saying not to use braces on the shoulder compared to using a a non-slip mattress. It's better to use a non-slip mattress than have those braces just because you're going to be at more risk for that compression injury with those braces. Okay, next, let's talk about reverse Trendelenburg. So this is basically just the exact opposite of Trendelenburg. This is going to be feet down, head up. The main thing you want to think about here with cardiac is that you're going to decrease your venous return because you're going to have gravity helping with the upper part of your body, but you're going to have increased workload getting that blood from your legs back up to your heart. And so you'll have decreased venous return. This will result in hypotension. And specifically, if you have a patient who's hypovolemic, they're going to be at increased susceptibility to this hypotension from the positioning. You'll have increased functional reserve capacity. So as far as your lungs go, this is actually better than most of these positions that we'll talk about today. If you think about it, your abdominal contents, diaphragm, everything's moving caudal, moving down towards your feet. And so you have increased compliance. Compliance, remember, is the ability for the lungs to expand. And if you don't have that pressure pushing up on the lungs, they have free mobility to fully expand. So your compliance is increased, your functional reserve capacity, your FRC is increased. You'll have decreased airway pressures. This makes sense because you have such increased compliance that the pressure needed to expand the lungs is going to be decreased. One thing to keep in mind here is that you want to monitor, if you're doing invasive blood pressure monitoring, you'll want to set your transducer at the external auditory meatus. This is level with the circle of Willis. And what is really important about this is that you want to be monitoring for cerebral blood flow. So if you recall, every 10 centimeters above your heart your blood pressure will decrease by 7.4 millimeters of mercury. So as you have these patients in steep reverse Trendelenburg and their head's going to be farther above their heart, you need to pay attention. Well, if we have them, you know, barely on the line, their map's 65, 60, whatever, you have to keep in mind, well, that means that up at their brain, they're going to be lower than that, depending on how much higher their head is than their heart. So that's why it's a good idea to set your transducer to that external auditory meatus just so you have in real time what their blood pressure would be at that point. Next, let's move on to lithotomy position. In this position, they're going to be on their back. Their legs are going to be up in stirrups. I feel like this one, I don't know about you, Cole, but I feel like this one is one of the more dangerous or the one that you have to really pay attention to. Yeah, there's... So many things to be careful for in this position in terms of getting the patient into the position to begin with. When you're lowering and raising the legs into the stirrups themselves, you need to be very mindful that you're doing it together because let's say you raise the left leg faster than the right leg, you can actually cause some spine torsion to occur. We need to be very mindful of raising and lowering these legs together and then also just the positioning of it. 
I know a lot of times the fingers are just neutral next to the body. And when we remove or attach the foot portion of the bed, once the patient's asleep, if their, their hands are under the sheets kind of down in that area, it's right where that hinge is. And you can actually crush their fingers with detaching or attaching that, that part of the bed. So there's a lot of things that we need to watch out for once the patient's asleep and we're maneuvering them into these positions. Yeah. So moving into the cardiovascular and respiratory side of things, also some uh, nerve considerations you need to think about with lithotomy position. You'll have an increased venous return and cardiac output. This is very similar to the Trendelenburg position where you get basically an autotransfusion from the lower extremities back to your heart. Your abdominal components will shift towards your head. So again, you'll have decreased FRC, increased airway pressures, decreased compliance, the one thing that you really need to pay attention to here in this lithotomy position is compartment syndrome in the lower extremities. This is because of inadequate arterial blood flow from the leg elevation, or potentially you can get obstructed venous outflow because of the stirrups causing compression there behind the knee or because of excessive hip flexion. When you talk about nerve injuries, this is, again, partly why I was thinking it's like a minefield of different complications. So the common peroneal nerve is at risk for injury because of your leg compression against the pole. So if you have your stirrups, or even if you had an IV pole that was uh, up there, up against their leg, then you could have some injury to the common peroneal nerve. This presents as foot drop or the inability to extend your toes. So keep in mind that common peroneal nerve is going to be on the outside of your leg, and that's where you're at risk for injury there. You also have injury possibility to the medial side of your lower leg. So this could compress your saphenous nerve. This will present as reduced sensation over the anterior medial aspect of the leg. So the saphenous injury will be more of a sensory injury, whereas your common peroneal will be more motor. Your sciatic nerve along the back is going to be an injury from external rotation or hyperflexion of the hip. Again, remember we said that you can have nerve injury because of crush, stretch, or pressure. There's several different mechanisms here. When you think of sciatic, this is going to be more of a stretch situation where if you have their legs flexed to their chest too much, then the sciatic nerve running along the back will be stretched. Or if you have them externally rotated and there's hyperflexion of the hips there, then you can also have injury. The last one mainly is the obturator nerve, and this can occur due to excessive flexation of the thigh. And this is in the groin. So this is more of like a, a crush injury where it's on the front side. If you are flexing the knee too much, again, this is kind of crushing the front, whereas you have injury of stretching in the sciatic nerve in the back. And then along with your obturator nerve, there's the femoral nerve that runs there through your groin. And so again, if you have increased hip flexion, you can have damage to the femoral nerve. This will present as reduced sensation over the anterior aspect of your thigh and the medial aspect of the leg. And then also they'll have impaired motor function as well. The inability to have hip flexion and knee extension will also be impaired by the femoral nerve injury. Awesome. So let's move in now to the lateral position the lateral to cupidus position, which basically is you're going to have the patient on their side. So we're going to be talking here in terms of dependent and non-dependent. So depending on which side you turn the patient on, the lower part is going to be the dependent, upper part is going to be the non-dependent. So when we have these patients in these positions, be very mindful of all the dependent extremities and parts of the face. And what I mean by that 
is we're going to have the dependent leg, so the lower leg. I want them to be flexed, and a pillow or some type of padding needs to be placed between the two knees because they're going to be laying on top of each other. We don't want to cause any pressure injury between the legs. The dependent arm is also going to be placed out in front of the patient on a padded arm board, and that non-dependent arm is going to be supported by either a stack of blankets, pillows, another padded armrest, etc. So just envision this patient on their side, padding between their knees, their arms are out in front of them, padding between their arms. And obviously, again here, if we're going to be compressing on that dependent shoulder, what's the biggest thing we're going to be at risk for? That's going to be brachial plexus injury. And so we can place an axilla roll underneath the patient. And it's important here to place this caudal to the axilla because while the whole purpose of it is to release that compression to that dependent shoulder to prevent the brachial plexus injury, we also don't want to cause other injury to the other axilla nerves and then the vasculature running through the axilla there. And what we can have then is some compression injury to that, which will cause some ischemia further down the dependent arm. And so that's why it's very important that when you place the roll, you don't shove it up into their armpit. You place it caudal to that actual axilla. And the way to monitor this is by putting their pole socks on the dependent finger if you can. And by doing that, it'll just give us a nice monitor throughout the case of if we are compressing the vasculature running through there and decreasing blood flow to that extremity. But if your pole socks is still working fine or if you have your non-invasive blood pressure, try to put it in the dependent arm. That'll also work as well, just to make sure that we are not compressing any type of vasculature or blood flow going through that area. Moving up into the head, you want to make sure the dependent ear, eye, parts of the face are all padded appropriately. There's no bends in the ear that they're laying on. A lot of injuries can occur there as well. So just make sure in this position, there's a lot of different areas we need to pad. Any type of the dependent elbow, hip, knee, heel, etc. And then when you have their head laying down, make sure it is in the neutral position on the side and you don't have it turned. And the meaning of that is because if you stretch their neck away from their shoulder, then you can also have that brachial plexus injury occur from that as well. So if you haven't gathered yet, brachial plexus injury is a big thing that can happen if any of these positions. So just be very mindful of how you're aligning the head and the shoulder with all these positions. In terms of the cardiovascular and respiratory side of things, we want to think of this as, again, dependent and non-dependent. Blood flow is going to go primarily to the dependent lung over the non-dependent. So it's going to flow to that lower lung, whereas the patient breathing is going to take more air to the non-dependent lung. And so you're going to have a VQ mismatch. We're going to be ventilating the non-dependent or the upper lung more in comparison to the blood flow going to the dependent or lower lung itself. And so what that can cause here is that mismatch. It's not really going to affect the venous return that much in this position. And you're not really going to have that significant of a change in blood pressure, but we're more concerned about the VQ mismatch itself that can occur in this position. All right, next, let's move on to the prone positioning. And when they are prone, you need to be careful about how their legs are placed. So they should be padded and then slightly flexed at the hips and knees. This is going to be important to prevent any stress or pain in their back. Their arms, again, you need to be careful about their brachial plexus. As Cole mentioned, that's going to be a major consideration in many of these. The arms can be neutrally tucked at their sides, or you can place them on arm boards above their head. Again, the humor should not be brought above 90 degrees at the shoulder. So if they do have their arms 
up, then that's going to be just at a 90 degree angle. The ideal placement for bolsters, we use bolsters in this position to basically let their abdomen hang freely. These are basically two arches that go on the bed. And when you put them over into the prone position, you want to have their belly hanging dependently between these bolsters. You want to have their breast tissue hanging medial to these bolsters. You want them not to be on the outside or compressed by these bolsters. And the idea here is that it's going to decrease the compression on that interior side of the patient. The proper positioning for these is you want them to be between your clavicle and your iliac crest. So you don't want them above the clavicle and have pressure there on your bones. You don't want them to be lower than the iliac crest because then you can have some compression and injury with your genital region and your groin and also your femoral vessels that could be compressed there as well. Your FRC is actually going to be improved because you have basically your lungs are more in this dependent position and you have better ability to expand your lungs. Your cardiovascular effects are going to be really limited unless you have compression with the bolsters that are either compressing the venous return or if you have actual compression there on the chest region and then you'd have difficulty pumping blood out. The bony prominences, so on your face, forehead, your chin, those are all going to be considerations. You're going to have their head slightly turned to one side or the other unless they have a padding device where you can actually have their head in neutral position. That's the best way to do it. And then you'll have their ET tube coming out of that padded device. And so with that, you want to make sure their eyes, nose, their mouth, their ears, like Cole mentioned in the lateral position, those are all going to be very vulnerable tissue that you need to make sure there's no compression or pressure on those tissues. Great. And one last thing I want to add with the prone position is the actual turning of the patient from supine to prone is really the most significant part of this in terms of where things can go wrong. What I mean by that is be very mindful of where all your lines are, where your ET tube is, making sure that you are monitoring that section. You do not want that ET tube to come out. Because I don't know about you, but I ain't about trying to intubate a patient when they're already prone. Lazy that you want to intubate them on their back. Yeah, I guess unless you're bored. (laughs) (laughs) crush the last 10 ET tubes that you place. You might as well try something new, but I'm not going to be trying that unless I absolutely have to. Just be very mindful of having somebody uh, monitoring each different part of the lines, et cetera, when you're going to to turn the patient over and that you're not actually going to be causing compression injury to that dependent shoulder while you're turning the patient. That's where a lot of injuries can occur as well. So moving into the sitting position, this is the last one we want to talk about today. So basically the surgical procedures used for the sitting position are going to be those involving the superior cervical spine. And there's some modifications to this position as well. You can have the beach chair position, uh, a modified sitting position, and basically those just alter the flexion and extension of the knees and the, the hips to prevent some injury to the lower back and the legs themselves. But for the most part, with all these modifications in the main sitting position, you're going to have the patient upright with their head in the highest part of their body. And so what this can do, as Tanner already talked about with the reverse Trendelenburg, is if you're going to be monitoring blood pressure, simply because that head is now higher than the level of the heart, you want to make sure you're monitoring an invasive blood pressure at the external auditory meatus, which is at the level of that circle of Willis. Some complications that can occur here is going to be a venous air embolism. And as a result, you can also have some cerebral hyperperfusion, 
simply from what I just said with the head being so much higher than the rest of the body, you're at risk of not getting enough blood flow up there. In terms of the venous air embolism, so if you remember all the way back on our first episode, we talked about a pneumoperitoneum and we discussed how one of the complications there could be a venous air embolism as well. And if you remember, the immediate sign you're going to see is a, a dramatic decrease in your end tidal CO2. The gold standard of diagnosing this or recognizing this is to have a TEE. You'll also be able to hear a mill wheel murmur as well with these patients. So if, if you start to see these things happen and you are suspicious of a venous air embolism, what you're going to do is you're going to immediately drop the patient down, turn them on their left side, try to trap that gas in their right atrium and be able to either remove it with a CVC or uh, just prevent it from continuing either to the lungs or to the brain or just causing a blockage and hyperperfusion to different parts of the body. So obviously you're going to want to give 100% FiO2 in this case and then do whatever you can to prevent that from spreading. Another complication you can see in this position is pneumocephalus. Basically, this happens from what I understand in pretty much all patients, but it's rarely significant, but it's more at risk in this sitting position. And again here, what kind of nerve injury are we going to be looking out for? Obviously, it's going to be the brachial plexus injury. It's going to be a concern here simply because the shoulders being in line with the, the head. And what I mean by that, if the shoulders are allowed to just sag down, and just drop, then you can have that stretch injury between the neck and the shoulders. So you want their shoulders to be either neutral or slightly even elevated. So almost like you're like a football player kind of hunching up your shoulders, trying to look all beefy. It's kind of what you want this patient to look like and not just sag down. And like I said earlier, you can slightly flex their knees and this is to prevent a stretch injury to the sciatic nerve. Uh, so just be mindful here again of different pressure points. This is very similar to supine position in terms of their heels, their tailbone, uh, et cetera, just any, anything that's going to be having the most compression. And then lastly, with this part, just going over the hemodynamics and the respiratory side of things. So in this position, you're going to have increased functional reserve capacity just because you're not having the abdominal compartments push up on the lungs. So you're going to be able to have increased respiratory compliance, decreased respiratory pressures, but you're also going to have a decrease in venous return simply because you're sitting upright. And so with any of these positions that we're having a decreased venous return or we're going to be having an increased venous return, just be mindful of which way you are. And then when you flip back at the end of the procedure to a normal position, how that's going to shift or, or change. So for example, if I have the patient in Trendelenburg or in lithotomy and I'm getting an increased venous return, I might look like I have a good blood pressure, but I might actually be hypotensive underlying or hypovolemic. And then when I flip the patient back at the, at the end of the procedure, they might switch to being hypotensive in that case. So just be mindful of how not only during the position, how that's going to affect your hemodynamics, but then also when you flip them back to neutral, how that's going to change at the end of the procedure as well. Next, we're going to just talk briefly about specific nerve injuries. And we've already talked about many of these throughout our discussion already, but this will be just more of a focused review of the specific nerve injuries. So first, let's talk about the ulnar nerve injury. This is the most common nerve injury reported. So the ulnar nerve is vulnerable just laying on a table or against a pole. The other thing that you need to think about is that it goes through a little space called the olecranon process. And so if you have your elbow flexed too much, then you can actually cause pinch injury there at the olecranon process. This will present as the inability to abduct or oppose your pinky finger. And then you'll have impaired sensation on the fourth or fifth digit. So this is typically referred to as claw hand. 
the median nerve injury is not as common can happen with elbow hyperextension. So be cognizant of this. Say if you did inappropriately tuck their arm next to underneath the mattress and their arm had fallen and it was just hanging there dependently for the entire case, then you could have injury there with the median nerve. If you placed an IV in the AC and you did not do that well, you can cause median nerve injury. If they have carpal tunnel syndrome, it can also be more of a consideration because that nerve passes through the carpal tunnel. This will present as the inability to oppose your thumb and reduced feeling on the palmar side of your thumb, your index finger, middle finger, or the lateral side of your ring finger. So while the ulnar nerve does the outside of your hand, the fourth and fifth finger, the radial nerve will be more of your palm and then also your first fingers on your hand. The last one here in the arm that we're going to think about is the radial nerve injury. So this passes on the lateral side of the humerus. And so this will be mainly you want to think about external compression from a pole that would cause injury here. So, I mean, if you're in the OR, look at where your IV poles are. I feel like so many of these are so easily prevented by simply just getting a good view at your patient, making sure that nothing's pressing up against them. This is, you know, people are moving around in the OR, they have bigger things to worry about. Things might get bumped and, and maybe leaning up against your patient. So important to look over the drape, make sure you keep observing your patient. So something as simple as an IV pole is not causing damage to your patient. The other one here would be excessive blood pressure cuff use. So if they have increased compression from their blood pressure cuff, then you can also see injury to the radial nerve. This is going to be inability to extend the hand at the wrist. And so basically all your fingers will just fall down when the palm is facing down. So the radial nerve is the inability to think with the radial nerve, you're going to have injury with the wrist, inability to move the wrist, radial, median is going to be the first part of your hand and the palm, and then your ulnar is going to be your fourth and fifth fingers. So that's the upper extremity. Down to the lower extremity, we've kind of already touched on these, but you're going to have your obturator nerve, your femoral nerve, your sciatic nerve. We already talked about your saphenous and your common peroneal nerve. Basically, a quick review on those, your obturator injury is basically going to be due to excessive flexion of the thigh towards the groin. And so this is going to result in the inability to adduct the leg, and you're not going to be able to sense the medial aspect of the thigh. The femoral injury is, again, just due to excessive traction. And so you're going to have impaired hip flexion and knee extension. So I like to think of someone just lying on their back with their legs straight up in the air. You're not going to be able to do that. So you're not going to be able to flex your hip and extend your knee when you have femoral injury. And as Tanner mentioned earlier, this is going to result in a reduced sensation over the anterior thigh and then the anterior medial aspect of the leg as well. And then the sciatic injury is going to be from extreme hip flexion and external rotation of the legs. So again, lithotomy position is just prime for all these to have occur. But in this position, then you can also have injury from sitting too long with straight legs. You want to have a little bit of the knees flexed, the hips bent, and just not have that perfectly straight picture during your surgery. And this, again, can also present as foot drop, which Tanner talked about earlier. The other thing that can cause foot drop is going to be injury to your common peroneal nerve, which is on the lateral side of your leg, and the saphenous nerve is on the medial side of your leg. The other thing that can cause some injury is your superficial peroneal nerve, and this is on the top of your, basically your lower extremity. So if you have any pressure that's going to be on the top of your lower extremity, that can cause some injury here. So whether that be Maybe you have their legs crossed and the upper leg 
is pushing down on the top of your lower leg. That can cause some injury there. And on the flip side, you can cause some injury to your sural nerve, which is on the underside of the leg. So basically just know that if you cross their legs, you can have injury to the underside of the top leg from a sural injury and the top part of the lower leg from a superficial peroneal injury. And lastly, you can have injury to your pendendal nerve as well. And basically this is more up in the groin and it's from compression from a perennial post. So if you have any type of procedure that would require perennial posts and you have the patient compressed up against that in their groin, you can have injury occur here. And this is going to present as a loss in penile sensation and then crush injury to the genitalia as well. So that pretty much sums up the different main positions that we wanted to talk about today and the common nerve injuries that can occur from all of these. And as Tanner alluded to, Going through this, a lot of this seems to be pretty preventable. Obviously, things still do happen. And if we put all these things in place, there are still injuries that can occur. But for the most part, there are things that we can limit and change to reduce the risk of these injuries and reduce the risk of pressure injuries that can occur, reduce the risk of having some hemodynamic significance occur from these different positions. So just keep in mind that if I'm going to be flipping the patient in Trendelenburg, and I'm going to be increasing their venous return, but also pulling more blood in the their head. Just be cognizant of the fact of doing a leak test before you extubate. It's just a lot of things that if we think about this through, how is it going to affect respiratory? How is it going to affect hemodynamics? We should be able to limit some of the significant adverse events that can occur from these positions.